2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today on Forum, confronting the reality of climate change is often a terrifying and paralyzing activity. But in the right hands, the story of our warming planet can be a tale of human ingenuity, resilience, and adaptability. Humans, for better or worse, find ways to adapt to almost anything, even the collapse of civilizations. Forum brings together two legendary science fiction writers, Kim Stanley Robinson and Annalie Newitz, to get their perspectives on the question of the long-term fate of humanity. That's next on Forum, right after the news. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today on Forum, we're talking humanity's future, the long arc. I have two writers with me from here in Northern California who have planetary imaginations, thinking across time scales and geographies. In the old days, they might have been known as science fiction writers, but now they are both renowned for their work considering climate change, which has given rise to a newish name for their genre, cli-fi. If cyberpunk added grit and darkness to the shiny techno futures of the 1950s imagination, this new science fiction has to contend with the default scenario of climate change nightmares. Now the hardest task is mapping a narrow trail through the future for humanity to walk to avoid disaster. First, let me introduce Kim Stanley Robinson, writer and author most recently of The Ministry for the Future, as well as, among other things, the California Trilogy. Welcome to the show, Stan.
3: Thanks. It's great to be with you.
2: And also joining us today is Annalee Newitz, a science journalist and science fiction writer who has authored two great sci-fi novels. Earlier this year, they published Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Welcome, Annalie.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: So I want to start with your relationship to this place because you're both, to me, quintessentially Californian writers, you know, as much as you're Wallace Stegners or or whoever. Um, Stan, one of your characters in the Ministry for the Future calls San Francisco the most beautiful city in the world. And I want to know, do you see it that way? And do you mean the city or do you mean the bay as a whole or even like the whole estuarial system?
3: Uh, well, I mean the city first and foremost, although it is a great bay and a, and a great state. Um, um, Annalie and I I grew up just a, a few miles from each other, although in different decades down in Orange County. So coming to San Francisco is like, um, a stupendous upgrade in um, uh, beauty and civilization and, and I, I live in Davis so I, I feel like I'm in the provinces of San Francisco and I think that it's the provincials that always love the capital the most uh, when I go down to San Francisco it's just uh, like I'm tripping, it's fabulous and I'm excited and seeing friends and then I go back to little old Davis and it's like returning to the Midwest so I have a heightened appreciation for San Francisco
2: And Annalie, at one point you wrote that San Francisco was like a limb of yours and you couldn't imagine ever leaving um, because it would be like actually losing a a part of your body. So how do you think being a a San Franciscan, a chosen San Franciscan, has shaped your output as a writer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Stan is right that when you've grown up in Orange County in Southern California, that San Francisco and the, the whole Bay Area really is a revelation because it's this incredible mixture of... Um, you know, hardcore industrial history and capitalism and contemporary high-tech capitalism. So just this really like libertarian, destroy the earth kind of feeling um, combined with this radical history of environmentalism. And somehow those two things keep coming together in the San Francisco Bay Area to create just a lot of really weird, interesting political movements, amazing inventions. Um, And for me, um, it just, it feels like home because there's such a diverse mix of communities that don't feel like they should go together. Um, And then of course, there's the, the other piece of that, which is that Um, through, you know, luck and hard work by environmentalists, San Francisco is a very green city. Um, It has a lot of um, green spaces. It has an incredibly huge uh, public park in Golden Gate, but of course, lots and lots of other Spaces that are green, lots of trees on the street, um, and or not in the street. (laughs) I mean, although we're trying to grow them in, yeah, I was going to say we're we're working on keeping some of our slow streets um, from from pandemic times. So uh, maybe there will be trees growing in the street. Um, So I think that it's. That's part of why it feels like it's part of me, because it, it really feels like it's a living city, not just because the infrastructure is changing and humans are living here, but because there's other creatures living here, too. Um, there's trees, there's lots of animals, there's, um, you know, hawks that fly overhead. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's really a weird and wonderful mixture
2: yeah I also think there's there's something about Mount Tam being so close by, particularly from the East Bay, you look over and you just see this sort of guardian of the of the city um, I want to uh ask you about what it's been like in San Francisco um during the pandemic. I mean, just as someone who researches abandoned cities I was just i've been imagining you walking the streets of downtown um you know wind wind blowing in your face, trash swirling. Um, and, and nobody else out there. Um, how, how have you felt about these uh, pandemic months inside the city?
1: It's been interesting because there have been a lot of national news stories about how people are abandoning the city, and there's been a couple waves of those stories, and there was sort of this initial uh, burst of data that came from Redfin and a couple of other online um, uh, real estate Uh, sites that were suggesting that a bunch of people had, you know, sold their homes. But it turned out that that data was actually kind of misleading and that it was more it was reflecting a few people leaving, uh, but also a lot of people moving around within the city or around the city. Um, So it hasn't been as abandoned as one might think based on uh, reports. And so for me, I keep thinking about um, these beautiful murals by Mona Karen, um, which you can see in various parts of the city. There's one on Church Street that's really striking at Church and Market. That's a mural showing the past and present and future of San Francisco. And um, Mona always makes these beautiful representations of the future that remind me of a Kim Stanley Robinson novel, um, the, the utopian parts of them, um, where, you know, the city has a a river running down market street again and there's um, plants and animals and people with co-ops and like playing in the street and it's just this beautiful eco future and you know Parts of the city during the pandemic felt like that. We shut down streets and turned them into um, walking areas. We called them slow streets, um, and that was something that the you know SFMTA worked really hard to do. And there was one of these streets right by my house, and people were making murals on the street, planting tree, um, planting trees and planters on the street. Kids were playing. There were like dance troops and, um, you know, bands on the weekend. And I thought, wow, I wonder if this could be permanent, you know, and there's so much horror and, and fear. Um, and at the same time we figured out just a little way, um, to make the city feel more livable. Mm
2: -hmm. Stan, the, um, in, in the Ministry for the Future, one of the most stirring passages um, is when one of the characters takes a trip out to Sausalito to look at the model of the bay. And they have it described to them, essentially, how California figured itself out, both politically as well as from a sort of ecological perspective. Do you think California is going to do that? And, and what would that vision really look like of a, a California that had both been rewilded and, and better governed?
3: I think it can happen, and I'm very proud of California as a political entity um, being progressive and trying things. Of course, it's part of the world economy. Um, uh, it, hasn't, it can't escape it. It hasn't altered it uh, yet, so it suffers from inequality and um, a lack of justice that would need to be solved for all these other good things to happen. But what I liked and what I wrote about in ministry was the way that I'm thinking about nationalization as being a, a, a public and leftist response to the neoliberal privatization that we've seen over the last 40 years. And in some senses, I think that California's water, uh, such as it is in its limited quantities, is, is um, has been kind of nationalized or statized in that uh, you can't accumulate a huge amount of water as a private rich person, as your personal supply. Um, it's a commons, and Sigma, the law um, that was passed by the California legislature, uh, orders management, groundwater management, and that means it can't be pumped at will but has to be part of a, a commons. And that leads to thinking of habitat corridors across the Central Valley to let the wild animals back. The, the foothill zones that are all over the state surrounding the Central Valley and the whole coast all these foothill zones are are semi-wild already, and with some accommodations to our wild cousins, you can imagine a super productive California in the old economic terms, like it being the fifth biggest economy on Earth, et cetera, et cetera, but also a leader in how to live sustainably with the rest of the biosphere because we're so blessed in California with almost every kind of ecosphere and biome, and some are heavily damaged, but... um, that almost all of them are are up for restoration, could be restored, and and that could be part of the work of what we do as a as a civilization. So um, it's easy to get really. I don't. I don't like to say patriotic. That's a kind of nation state word, but it's easy to be proud of California as a as a space, just as an animal wandering around this, and also the built infrastructure, the human decisions. And San Francisco is beautiful and. Um, in its in its human aspects and I agree with you about Mount Tam by the way I was at the top of in the offices at the top of what my friend has taught me to call the big tower we ought not to give it its commercial name <laughs> and we all we all know which one you're talking I'm talking about here and I was up on the top floor and it looked like we were as high as Mount Tam although we were only about half up it but the view out to the fair and the view of the entire city from up on the big tower which obviously should become a you know, a public viewing platform. Um, It was gorgeous. And, uh, and I think um, uh, it's, it's really quite stunning to live. I, I was just speaking my mind when I called it the most beautiful city on earth. I haven't seen them all. And so I'm making a claim here that I can't substantiate because it's so emotional. But it certainly is a, spectacular landscape.
2: I definitely don't, agree, don't disagree with you. Um, we're talking about science fiction here that's not entirely dystopian, and the long sweep of humanity with Kim Stanley Robinson, writer and author of The Ministry for the Future, the Mars Trilogy, and Annalie Newitz, science journalist and author of the book Four Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age, as well as the novels The Future of Another Timeline and Autonomous... Can you imagine a future in which your own children or grandchildren live a better life than you have? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more after a break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're here talking with Kim Stanley Robinson and Annalie Newitz, acclaimed uh, authors. I before the break, we were uh, briefly talking about plans, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, that for nationalizing things, uh, possibly water infrastructure or other things. And you know, one of the big questions I have is: you know, you're a beloved science fiction writer in the technological world, and when you bring up a plan like that among your average group of Silicon Valley types,
3: what do they say to you? And leave the room to tell you the honest, but um, a lot of them are interested to contribute their own ideas for how things could change. So it's all over the map, just like everywhere else. Um, they are, tech people are not especially coherent um, politically or or in personality. So it's, it's just hard to, it would be hard to characterize them. But I'll say this, they like to gather and talk. And um, because their talks tend to be technical and partial, they're deep in their silos, they're off in uh, cyberspace or, or doing things like that. To talk for for an hour about political economy, I think they find refreshing and interesting as a kind of a generalist Um, discussion. Mm -hmm.
2: You know, I think the pandemic really showed at least one of the things it showed for me was just uh, the shock of how little state capacity really exists uh, here in in the United States, especially in contrast to some other countries like China. And Annalie, how did the pandemic change how you see the future unfolding?
1: I mean, that's a good question. In my my novel Autonomous, I kind of thought about the future of the pharmaceutical industrial complex (laughs) Um, and there's a lot of uh, characters in that novel who are kind of having a lot of the thoughts that I'm having now um, which is a little bit weird to feel like you're growing into becoming very futuristic characters who steal drugs from pharmaceutical companies (laughs) Um, but they're they're thinking these the characters are thinking a lot about stuff like how do you how do you engage in direct action when the um, problem that you're dealing with is a pandemic that is potentially preventable through high-priced drugs? Um, and so, what I think about um, is exactly that. You know, how are we going to move forward when? Um, the kind of uneven access to resources across the globe becomes even more starkly a question of life and death. Um, It's easy to um, feel distanced from that kind of question when you're saying, oh, well, it's uneven access to the internet. Um, and that's something we've been talking about for a long time and talking about the knock-on effects of people having uneven access to the Internet and how that uh, means that you have less access to jobs and less access to potentially healthcare. But when it's something like a technology that can either prevent you from dying or not or prevent your family from dying or not, um, then I think people start to realize what the stakes are in a lot of these um, debates over global capitalism and, and global um, trade. And I think that I, I, I think about how, like I said, how we're going to intervene, what are the direct actions going to be? What are the democratic actions going to be? How can we um, invite the state in uh, in a healthy way to help regulate healthcare uh, and make sure that we don't see what we're seeing right now, which is pockets of the world that are still deep in the throes of battling the coronavirus and then other parts of the world that are just Completely recovered, um, so I think we're in for a new stage in the fight against global capital, and it'll be something to see <laughs>
2: yeah, you know Stan both of you pay really keen attention to sort of economic underpinnings of the of our world and and the worlds you imagine. Do you see a, a future earth where capitalism you know, in more or less its current form, remains intact, but humans avert the worst effects of climate
3: change? No, that wouldn't work. Um, We're already in a a period of supremely rapid transition into what, to some kind of post-capitalism. And so I think the first step of that we're seeing already is simply a return to Keynesianism, where a government has allowed its uh, a role as governance, and the idea that the market could govern has been discredited uh, by the last 40 years of its bad performance. So um, a, a balance between state and finance with state taking the lead role, as it should be, that I think will be a the first steps uh, and so one way to think about this is in 500 years will there be a capitalism as we know it you would have to laugh and so what you do then is shove that date back towards us at what point does it change well with the biosphere collapse and with radical inequality we're at, we're at the start of the change now and it's going to come really rapidly strange things are happening that the central banks are all gathered together, and I didn't even know this when I wrote Ministry for the Future, to form a network for greening the financial system, 89 of the central banks including all the big ones that matter, and they're trying to figure out how can money itself be made green, and uh, so carbon quantitative easing, uh, paying people to do good work for the biosphere rather than uh, strip mining the biosphere. These these things are already begun and are being discussed, so... Um, um yeah, this is the beginning of post-capitalism. Emily, yeah. do you want to answer that one too?
1: Yeah, I was, I was interested to follow up on that and say that I think there's room to have, um, and this is a bit dark, a hyper-capitalist future that's also green. And so I I hope that Stan is right that we're entering a post-capitalist phase and that that's also better than capitalism <laughs> um and that it isn't some sort of return to the feudalism um which you know can also be i suppose exciting in some ways um but I I feel like my scenario is more about how does capitalism figure out a way to commodify Saving the environment or maintaining the environment uh, in a way that is hospitable for humans and our biosphere. So I, I think, I think there's an opening for capitalism to continue to like run roughshod over everything, including other planets, um, and exporting uh, maybe our uh, our environmental technologies to other planets, so that we can just keep building Earths everywhere. So I, I worry that, that those things can be decoupled and we save the planet, but we don't save humanity, <laughs> if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, you know, Robin Sloan is a, a friend of the show, and I think actually to both of you, I believe, you know, he turned me on to the mm-hmm. sociologist Zygmunt Bauman's concept of you know, liquid modernity. And I'm going to slightly paraphrase here to, to make it simple, but he basically poses the central dynamic of our time as anything can happen, but nothing can be done. And I think one of the things that really strikes me about both of your work is you're writing radically against that idea. You're trying to create these sort of imaginative guides, guides for action. And we actually have a caller in Alameda, Elena, who wants to talk about the start of the book and maybe how we actually get started on real change. Elena, welcome to the show.
4: Hi,
5: thank you so much. Um, this question is for Kim Stanley Robinson. Your book, Ministry for the Future, is probably one of my favorite books I've read this year. It was incredible. And you opened the book with a very sort of dramatic and graphic retelling of a um, heat wave in India that a character experiences. And I'm curious if you think that that kind of dramatic uh, event in history would be uh, the actual catalyst for climate change.
3: Well, for action on climate change, maybe so. But what I would say is that I wrote that out of fear that this could happen, and quite soon. Um, uh, The wet bulb 35 temperature at which people are killed by heat and humidity in combination has already been hit in a few places on earth and we're gonna be hitting it more often. And if you don't have air conditioning, then it will kill you. and this was an, uh, a kind of a new scientific finding or something the scientific community is putting out there as news because in the last decade or so, the people advocating adaptation were often saying, well, humans are so adaptable, we'll just adapt to anything. And if the, if the global average temperature rises, we'll cope with it and on we'll go and all will be well. Uh, that's not true. And I wanted to make that point. If it does happen, and I hope it doesn't, but if it does, because it's quite likely to, Um, I don't think it will radicalize everyone on Earth. People will say, well, that happens in the tropics, that happens to other people, it will never happen to us, et cetera. We're very good at that. But I do think that you can see it coming in advance, that large swaths of the Earth are susceptible to it. And I wanted to point out that, in fact, we have to mitigate, we have to stop the global average temperature rise. We can't just cope with an ever-increasing rise. So that was one of the impetus for um, for for writing ministry for the future. Annalie, do you see
2: some other spark, some catalyst that that could make things take off to, in, in a better direction on climate change?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of, I think that Stan is absolutely right that there are going to be these horrific weather events. I think that's probably how they'll be framed, um, where you either have uh, death from heat waves or... You have flooding. Um, We're seeing flooding every year. Here in California, of course, fires are now an annual event um, and we all have to wear face masks like a month out of the year, it seems like now. Um, But I worry a lot and think a lot about food scarcity. And also, Mm. of course, as we were discussing before, water issues around water scarcity, uh, water toxicity. And I think that that is where I imagine the tipping point coming is when people are facing starvation and it's clearly connected to transformations in climate. Um, And then you start seeing large numbers of climate refugees that are fleeing areas that are no longer capable of yielding food or where the uh, aquifers have been completely depleted. Um, And I am very interested in how we think about what happens to those refugees. Do we build receiver cities for them? Do we, um, you know, neglect them further and create, you know, a massive number of people who have nothing to lose and therefore could possibly lead a very radical movement to change the planet? So it's always about food for me.
2: Well, you know, one of the big questions in Ministry for the Future is whether violence against people who knowingly encourage carbon burning, particularly those who are really in charge of orchestrating it at a a high level, um, whether violence is justified. And I know you really struggled with that, Stan.
3: Yes, I did. Um, I I wrote my novel as a kind of a, a moral puzzle or a detective story where the reader has to wonder who did what and then think about what's justifiable. And the novel, like I think our history is going to be, is kind of a mess on that level. Um, And in a way, I wish that I had made clearer distinctions in the novel, but maybe it was more realistic without that. But distinctions between sabotage and murder as being forms of political resistance. And Andreas mom, Swedish philosopher, just wrote a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and it's not a technical manual. It's a question about when do prosperous citizens in the developed world, um, uh, when is it justifiable and even morally required to uh, get out in the streets and get in the way and, and maybe break things in order to stop the burning of fossil fuels if it's going to end up um, destroying the life world for, our, for our, uh, the coming generations. So, yes, the the novel uh, doesn't have a, an answer, and I don't either. Um, it would be better if we could legislate our way there first. Yeah.
2: Annalise, do you have an answer? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot, too. And um, I'm kind of torn between two poles when it comes to the question of violence. So there's the side of me that's the L.A. Kaufman side. Um, She's a, a terrific writer who wrote a book about direct action. And of course, she advocates for kind of what Stan is talking about, like sabotage, nonviolent protest, uh, symbolic protests that get a lot of attention and change people's minds. And she's worked on a number of incredibly uh, important protests around the Sacklers and a lot of other um, groups. And then there's the other side that's the France Fanon side. And of course, he is the the famous mid-century critic um, who wrote about uh, decolonization and He was a psychiatrist who worked with people who had been in North Africa and the Caribbean um, under colonialism and saw what they'd experienced. And toward the end of his life was like, you know what, actually, sometimes if you're being colonized, you just have to shoot a guy. And, um, you know, I think it's a question of whether we think of the effects of climate change being more like um, a corporation that is mistreating people like you know, um a drug company that's giving people opiates or a company that's mistreating its warehouse workers, or do we think of it as something like a colonizing force is it is it hitting us like um you know a a, a country invading us and and you know telling us not to uh, do what we want to do, taking away our autonomy? So I think the answer is gonna really vary from place to place, and I think there are going to be moments where maybe there's no choice. Maybe you do have to, you know, engage in violence. I don't I don't condone murder or killing, but um, sometimes things get really dark. And so I hope that we don't ever reach that point. I hope that we can all just read L.A. Kaufman's amazing book about direct action and go that way. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah, I always, you know, I always think about the you know the the failed drug war in in Mexico. You know, keep taking out individual people, but you don't actually take out the system of of drugs and demand for drugs in the United States, and so you just have this never ending set of uh, uh, of capitalists who keep bringing um, uh, drugs into the United States in in different formats. No matter how much violence actually occurs there there in Mexico, And it's very very hard to watch. Um, yeah. Um, A couple uh, comments from listeners. Um, Catherine writes, I teach high school science. Um, There's a massive amount of understanding to convey and uh, facilitate about how climate change exacerbates or changes Earth's complex systems. But recently, I've been reading research from a Swedish psychologist, Maria Ohala, who has found educators who make space for student emotions will be able to facilitate more solutions or ideas from students in the inquiry process kids need to learn not only about science, but also about the importance of their emotions being heard. Do you um, sense, Stan, that students or young people have a fundamentally different set of ideas about the climate than the ones in in your peers?
3: That's a good question. Um, I I suppose that I'm just going to say that as a writer working out in my front car and typing out these books, I, I have a limited amount of contact with young people. Um, I do go and talk to high school classes in Davis and I'm always talking to undergraduates. So, um, they're intensely concerned because they can see that for the whole rest of their lives, this is going to be in their face. They're never going to get away from it. And they are also um Wondering if they're going to have to live at a because these are often college students and let's just say middle class Americans if they're going to have to live with more precarity they already feel precarious could it get worse and I want to back up something that Annalise said it's uh, food scarcity could come from a panic it wouldn't have to be a necessarily an absence of food being grown although that too would be bad but also if the supply chains if people don't have faith in them and go into hoarding mode. And if we get a food panic, that can really wreck things super fast. Young people are totally aware of that. And so precarity, that's the thing that I think boomers like myself don't quite get the way young people do. Mm
2: -hmm. Great. We'll be back um, after the break with more from Ken Stanley Robinson and Annalie Newitz. We're talking about a slightly less dystopian future and what we may be optimistic about more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're here talking with Kim Stanley Robinson and Annalie Newitz about the long sweep of humanity and climate change. A couple listener comments. Um, Jennifer writes, I've been listening to the show with my kids this morning, and my eight-year-old said, what a refreshing future when hearing about the rewilding of San Francisco. We need to hear the positive dream of what is possible. Let's remove fear and dream of a restored world. Um, let's go to Dan in San Francisco. Welcome to the show.
5: Hi, thank you very much. I'm, I'm Dan Gleisenkamp with the California Institute for Biodiversity. And we're, we're really inspired by both of these writers, especially in connecting scientists to decision makers. And right now there's a whole lot going on in this rewilding. We're, you know, we're building overpasses over freeways and abandoning land to save water and species. Uh, Senator Skinner and Ting are saving money for monarchs and pollinators, and part of this is budget surplus, but more of this is the fact that now scientists are finally having a voice that they haven't had. And my question is, you know, both of these writers have written about the idea of scientists finally being able to be free and not be vassals to global capitalism, kind of feudalism 2.0, as Stan has phrased it. And I wonder if you guys can talk a little about this idea and the prospects for it happening and approaches. For you know, by which scientists finally become free to develop solutions for people rather than just tools for the rulers.
2: Stan, you want to start off on that one?
3: Yes, um, I, I. It was in my Mars trilogy where one character describes our our human history at this moment as a battle between science and capitalism. Now, this is a very simplifying, and the two are actually like conjoined twins. They were born together or grew up together and are fighting for control of history. So I'm always on the side of science. Um, and we are in a scientifically created world uh, between public health, all the medical advances and the, and the infrastructure. our uh, Eight billion people is an artificial construct on this planet, and now we need to sustain it. And so... S- certain of successes that are scientifically based have actually created a, such a larger pop- population that there has been um, knock-on effects, as Annalie said. And, um, problems have been created by our successes, and now we are in deep. And we got to uh, listen to the scientists and then craft, because they are, as a, as a collective, they're in some ways rather modest. They just say, look, we're figuring out the world. We're figuring out things we can do. We don't know what to do with this. That's the political process that needs to figure that part out. So that's all the rest of us.
2: Emily, do you have the same view of science as this kind of force in history, or is yours slightly different?
1: I definitely am always on the side of the scientists, of course. Um, but I do think that um, science... Uh, partly through being coupled with capitalism, partly through being coupled with other kinds of social movements, like, say, white supremacy, um, science isn't always giving us the right answer. Um, there have been a lot of atrocities uh, committed, uh, either wittingly or unwillingly, unwittingly by scientists. And so I always bump up against what Stan was sort of gesturing at, which is that what we really need is good governance. We need evidence-based governance, and the evidence-based part is where science comes in. Um, I definitely think that uh, we would be in a better place if scientists were not forced to build widgets for profit and were able to do a lot more general research, basic research, into Uh, what's happening on this planet and how we can mitigate the effects of climate change that have already started. Uh, But I do think that uh, things like um, the Green New Deal or Biden's infrastructure bill, which is kind of a a soft echo of the Green New Deal, um, that kind of stuff is really, really important uh, for making a framework that we can attach to science um, or that can give us a roadmap of where we want our science to take us. Because especially here in Silicon Valley, I think we all have seen that um, quote unquote unfettered science sometimes just gives us garbage. Um, And what we really need is a vision for the future coupled with um, the kind of attitude that I love among scientists and engineers, which is just we can solve this. Uh, And that feeling that we can solve this, we can solve it together and we can do it using evidence from the real world, that is just um, exactly the engine that we need to propel us into that better world. You
2: know, it's, it's interesting because I think it's easy for many people who've been following climate news for a long time to be, get very cynical about things like the intergovernmental panel on climate change or the, or the Paris Accords. But Stan, you're, you're a defender of, uh, of these big uh, global institutions. How come?
3: Well, we have got a biosphere problem that's planetary in nature, and we're in the nation-state system uh, that where every nation is fighting for differential advantage against all the other nation-states and treating it as a war of all against all. So, in that sense, we're doomed. So, given that, if you don't want to be doomed, then you've got to make international agreements, and that's precisely what the UN, the IPCC, and the Paris agreements are – They're international platforms for the nations to come together and agree to act collectively. And anybody who challenges them is a kind of a, to me, a ridiculously cynical idealism like, oh, there's things should be better, but things aren't better. And so what would you propose as an alternative to the Paris Agreement, since we don't have a perfect world or world government, which might not be good anyway? So, yes, the Paris Agreement is one of the great moments in history. Now, it has to be added. It could become the League of Nations, a good idea that failed, and then 20 years later, you got disaster. That could happen. But it is the platform where we're going to get to a better space if we manage it.
2: Absolutely. Let's go to a young reader in Oakland. Matt, welcome to the show.
5: Hey, how are you doing? Actually, it is, it is my children who are young readers, speaking of next generation. Um, and I have a 10 and a 12-year-old. Um, and it seems like everything they read is uh, some kind of a post-apocalyptic narrative. Uh, so they're very familiar with all of these issues. Um, and uh, that their baseline is just, is, is one of just very high levels of anxiety about that, the future based on those kinds of narratives. And my, I guess my question is like, is there any, are there any resources that, that the panel can, can recommend that, uh, that, you know, kind of introduced a healthy level of that anxiety, but, but don't, have that tip over into learned helplessness, um, you know, more action oriented uh, uh, kinds of resources or things for for younger kids. And I realize that, you know, they mostly cater to an adult audience, but I would really love to hear their thoughts.
2: Annalie, you want to uh, take that one?
1: Um, I am not an expert uh, in young adults or children's fiction, um, but I do know that these days we're seeing uh, kind of a turning away from that dystopian strand in young adult writing. And I think, I mean, obviously the great resources are talk to a librarian and ask them to give you recommendations for books that aren't uh, apocalyptic. I, I do think that you see in, um, in lit, you know, we go through phases of fantasizing about how we can change the world. Um, and the apocalypse is one convenient fantasy about okay just first burn it all down then build the next thing uh, it's a very uh, quick fix idea and so um, that can that same idea can be expressed in different ways in different stories and so I think we're seeing a turn toward stories that are more about uh, fixing things or um, kind of getting into the future with your friends without having to have some kind of horrific nuclear apocalypse or other kind of apocalypse
2: I wanted to talk about before we go to a, a couple other calls. You know, I wanted to talk about the Chinese model. Um, you know, through the last four decades, you know, really this direct existence proof that didn't really exist when when I was born that uh, another economic system could lead to that kind of prosperity, and really the state capacity in China kind of boggles the mind. Like when they did the the lockdown in the early days of of COVID, but the Chinese Communist Party's authoritarianism also poses these incredibly difficult ethical questions. So, as you write and think about the future, how are you really how are you grappling with that? And let's start with you, Stan.
3: Um, well, my previous book to Minister for the Future is called Red Moon, and it's about China and this problem, and I concluded that it's really uh, impossible for an outsider to understand China today because all of the, my Chinese friends told me it was impossible for them too. So it, we're all just like the blind man and the elephant in this case. Um, it's, it, it's, it, what I came to in that book and in my thinking is that if the Chinese Communist Party trusts the Chinese people then the Chinese people will trust the Chinese Communist Party and their citizen satisfaction with their government is pretty high relative to Americans. But I've seen signs of distrust in the current leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and, and resulting in all kinds of quite terrible policies. At the same time, they are as committed to carbon reduction as anyone else, even though they've got lots of coal and are in an incredible growth spurt. And yet they are trying also to transition for climate terms. So and it's a mixed bag. It's a really important country. It, it, uh, one has to get away to take a larger sense of political representation and also look at the granular level of the the neighborhood councils in Chinese cities and so on, where people um, feel that they are represented by the political system. Now, I find that uh, 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 mysterious, and I think a lot of Americans do, because it, it seems to me democracy would be better. But it, they've worked out their methods in this last century, and it, I think if the Chinese people didn't like the Chinese Communist Party the way it was working, that it would rapidly uh, disappear. So they must like it. So it's a mystery, and 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 I guess I could conclude by saying that I personally feel very confused about it.
2: Yeah. Um, Jordan writes, um, I'm a scientist, and I think we live in the best place at the best time. Our knowledge and capability is better than ever. We know how to create a Garden of Eden. That is, we've done the research. We just need to propose policy that is not purposely divisive and political, like the Green New Deal, but implement solutions that work for everyone. Um, Henley, how do you see that sort of of comment?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, one person's best place ever is another person's complete uh, apocalypse. You know, I think that for some people this is a really great time to be alive um, especially if you're living in a place like San Francisco and you have a upper middle class job and you're white and you know no one gives you crap um, I think that for lots and lots of people this is an incredibly terrible uh, and terrifying time to be alive so I think you know whenever we have these kinds of conversations um, you know we have to be really careful about how we're framing these kinds of pronouncements. And also, you know, the question around um, is the Green New Deal politically divisive or not? Um, As we've been talking about throughout this conversation, we can't just have unfettered science. We have to have some kind of political framework. And right now, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about a lot in this conversation is that maybe we're going through A period of rapid innovation around the democratic process. Uh, And we can't quite see it yet because it's so chaotic and and scary, but maybe we're not just inventing new tools for fixing the environment, but maybe we're in the process, process of inventing new political tools to bring people together into communities and coalitions that are up to the task of fixing or mitigating uh, environmental damage that's been done. And I think a lot about um, the science fiction of Malka Older, uh, who wrote this really interesting trilogy that starts with a novel called Infomocracy. And it's about, it's a very realistic thought experiment uh, about a future global democracy in on earth and how it's run. And she's very, careful to talk about the problems that would come up and how you would have, you know, the same kinds of election hacking questions uh, that we've been facing here in the States uh, over the past four years. And I think I think we really need to think about that as an area for innovation, that we need to be thinking about how do we rebuild our civilization so that we can have better decisions about the environment and how do we rebuild consensus And um, and that the way we start with that is to stop accusing everyone of trying to be political and saying, like, all right, let's just get really political and hash it out and come up with like 17 different ways that we could do this and try some, just do some experiments.
2: Stan, what do you think of the idea that we're inventing the new democratic tools that we need for this era?
3: I think it's interesting. Um, We have the the Internet is uh, widely decried but we it does mean an interconnection of the whole world at a social level everybody knows everything if you've got a phone and there's more phones than people then you are tapped into the zeitgeist of the whole world um i think though that like they call it path dependency and so your freeway system has Uh, or any infrastructure thing has a path dependency where it takes a long time to change it to a new system. And I think there's a a less path dependency to political systems, but it still exists because people are used to it. So you need a little bit of generational change or a little bit of shock um, by something radical happening in history that forces change. I don't know that we're there yet, but I think climate change is the forcing action or getting it together, um, it, instead of talking about democracy, it's interesting to, to frame it as political representation. Do you feel your political representatives do what you would like them to do or do what the majority of your fellow citizens would like them to do? Or, or do you feel like they are um, paid off by other forces that are, so you elect them, but then they do what people who pay them they'll vote, they'll act, they'll legislate for private interests that have captured the legislative process by way of money. So in the United States, one sense of political representation is is messed up. And that's true everywhere on earth. In the European Union, they've got that super level of the European Union government over the national governments that makes you feel very detached from your political representation. China is a mystery, as I said. But um, could are new forms of political representation coming along or do we, are we stuck with the nation-state system for, for the foreseeable future? I tend to think it's more the latter.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Annalie, we have about two minutes left, a little bit less. Um, and I want to just ask you one final question, which is, you know, sort of considered from the outside, uh, in, the, in the pure sci-fi way, as a species, what do we have going for us?
1: Humans are really adaptable. And we do seem to be able to get used to a lot of different environments with the limitations that we've already talked about, which is that, you know, we can't live at certain kinds of temperatures, uh, and we can't live with a certain amount of toxins in the air. And the other thing is that we always seem to come together around storytelling. We have different ways of remembering the past through stories, um, through histories, through fiction. And we look back at that as a guide for the future. And I think that that actually is a very hopeful thing that we do. We're not just staying static. We're evaluating what we've done to the best of our knowledge and trying over and over and over again to rebuild our communities, to rebuild our cities, to reimagine our relationships to each other. And we do it pretty fast, too. You know, it is a generational kind of shift. And so I think there is hope for any group of creatures that's always trying again and again to come together in some kind of group. And yeah.
2: Thank you so much, Kim Stanley Robinson and Annalie Newitz. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour. Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.